1: Welcome to Talking Scripture, I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Joseph Smith-Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 12 and 13, and Luke 21. We're talking about the events during the last week of the Savior's ministry. The focus today is his discourse Tuesday evening, as he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming up, as well as the signs of his second coming. That's big picture what we're going to talk about. We're also going to look at three parables, the ten virgins, the talents, and the sheep and the goats. Now, let me set the stage for this, because
0: very few times in the Scriptures does the Savior talk about his second coming. He was asked many, many times. He was asked in the New Testament. He was asked in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended. He was asked by Joseph Smith. So many people have asked about his second coming, and normally he answers, it is not given to you to understand. Or he'll say, no one knows the time or the season." This is the one and only time that we can find in the scriptures where the Savior himself goes into great detail about the second coming. The second thing I want to say to set this up is I love the Joseph Smith Translation. I refer to it frequently. But let me be clear. There are only two portions of the Joseph Smith Translation that have been canonized. Everything else is kind of in your appendix or in the footnotes. Their study helps. their study aids. But two portions of the Joseph Smith translation have been canonized. And those two are the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 1 through 6. We call that the book of Moses. But it's a canonized Joseph Smith translation of the beginning of the Old Testament. And the other one is Tuesday night of his final week when he pulls his disciples into the Mount of Olives and answers their two questions, one of which being, what are the signs of the second coming? That was so changed in the Joseph Smith translation and so pertinent to our day that it has been canonized. It is part of our scriptures, not a footnote, not in the appendix. It is part of the scriptures. It is found in the Pearl of Great Price, and we call it Joseph Smith Matthew. It's very important that you remember that it is Matthew 24. That will become very important in a few minutes. So we are reading the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 24. Now, Mark 13 and Luke 21 are the chapters in Mark and Luke that kind of correspond to this. But Joseph doesn't give us a huge change in Mark or Luke. I think the Lord said this one is sufficient. So we're not necessarily going to turn to Mark's account and Luke's account, and we really won't spend a lot of time in the King James Version of Matthew 24. But it's good to read. It is phenomenal to read, and then go read the Joseph Smith Translation and see this inspired improvements. So we're going to focus our attention on Joseph Smith Matthew, which is the JST of Matthew chapter 24. Now, let me set it up. As we closed last podcast, remember, he spent most of Tuesday of his final week in the temple, contending against the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They asked him several questions in order to trap him, and he just knocked them out of the park and answered them beautifully and left them speechless. As he left the temple, the last thing he said to the Pharisees, he made it clear to them that they would see him coming in the clouds of glory at his second coming, and they would say in Matthew 23 verse 39, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That was the last thing he said as he departed from the temple, at least that we have recorded. You won't see me again until you see me And you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then as he's walking out, as they're leaving the temple to go out to Bethany, and I assume he's staying at Martha and Mary's house this whole week. And as he's leaving to head out there and they pass the temple, he points out to his disciples. Now, this is Matthew 24, the first few verses. See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another. That shall not be thrown down. So the two things that seem to be on the apostles mind is Jesus is going to come in the clouds of glory and the temple's going to be destroyed. Now, given that he takes his disciples out to the Mount of Olives. Now I'm reading in Joseph Smith, Matthew, verse four. And Jesus left them and went upon the Mount of Olives. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be which thou hast said concerning the destruction of the temple and of the Jews? So when will the temple be destroyed, and when will the Jews be destroyed? Now, he will answer that question from verse 5 through the semicolon in verse 21. He's answering the question about the destruction of the Jews. Now, we can look back in time and see that in 70 AD, the Romans under Titus came in and slaughtered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And the temple has never since ever been the same. Jesus is going to talk about that in 5 through 21. Now, the second question, back in verse 4, And what is the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world or the destruction of the wicked, which is the end of the world? And if I can summarize, if I can paraphrase, they were saying, tell us about the second coming. Tell us about the days in which you're going to come again. Now, he will answer that question in verse 21, starting at the semicolon. So those are the two questions. When will Jerusalem be destroyed, and when will you come again? Now, let's start with the first question. Let's talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and some of the prophecies that he gives about its destruction.
1: Okay, when we read these verses, verses 5 through 21, it's so important to really understand the historical context of verse 6. Jesus says, Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And then he's also going to say something similar in verse 9 Many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. That's going to lead into verse 12, speaking of the abomination of desolation. Jesus says, When you, therefore, shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, then you shall stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them that are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop flee and not return to take anything out of his house. Neither let him who is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and unto them that give suck in those days, therefore... Pray ye the Lord that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Historically, this all happened in 70 AD in what's called the Jewish War, when a group of Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire, and they basically threw them out, and they established their own empire, or they even minted their own coins that they had for a little while. But then Rome came in and put them down, destroyed the temple, and... And basically said to the Jews, you're not going to have a temple here anymore. And they actually renamed the city. And then the Jews were dispersed. And this all happened in what we call the First Jewish War, around 70 A.D., So when Jesus says, you know, there's going to be many false prophets, verse 9, and many are going to come in my name saying, I am Christ, I think sometimes when we read those verses, we think that there's people saying, hey, I'm the Savior of the world, or I am this cosmic Savior who is the Son of God coming down, and I'm going to redeem all mankind. That's how we kind of read the phrase, I am Christ. But in the time period of the people that lived in Jesus's day, a Christ was an anointed one. That word Christ also means Messiah, Christos, or or Mashiach, the, the Messiah, the anointed one. The Jews were expecting this. Remember, they had messianic hopes to have their own nation. And if you remember, we talked about this at the very beginning of the New Testament when we talked about that little space of time called the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. In 165 BC, there were a group of Jews who were able to overthrow their oppressors, remember Antiochus Epiphanes, they were able to take out their Syrian overlords and establish autonomy basically until Pompeii comes in around 90. So they had like, I don't know, 70 plus years of autonomy in their own place, in their own people, in their own nation. Well, we read about this individual named Menahem, and he was a Jewish revolutionary leader that came after Jesus so we had the Maccabees in the in the 2nd century BC and now we have another group of Jews that They thought, okay, we're going to overthrow Rome. And so Menahem was this fellow that in 66 AD, so about 33 years or or so after Jesus is crucified, uh, Menahem led a group of zealots in a rebellion against Rome and the authorities in Jerusalem. And this event has marked what historians have called the first Jewish-Roman war. Menahem and his followers seized the armory of Herod's palace, and that gave them a large cache of weapons and that cache of weapons made it so they could take control of the city of Jerusalem. He also played a key role, Menahem did, in the assassination of the high priest Ananus ben Ananus who was viewed as a collaborator with the Roman authorities. We kind of talked about this last podcast where we talked about that political tentative careful situation between Rome and the high priest and it was kind of like this unspoken agreement where the high priest said to Rome, "Hey." You give me the ability to collect the revenues, and I'll try to keep the zealots down. And Rome said, you keep the zealots down, and we'll maintain order. And so it's this politically advantageous symbiotic relationship between the high priest in Jerusalem and the Roman government. And so Menahem and his followers said, we're sick of this. We're kicking out Rome. And so this happens, but just know that Menahem's leadership was not uncontested. Like any revolutionary group, there's revolutions within the revolution. And so because he was able to do this, he also had opposition from other Jewish factions, particularly the Pharisees. And so if you want to know more about the details about what happened to Menahem and his leadership, because it was short-lived, he was killed, and, and you can read more about those details go to the show notes. But for now, for the purpose of this podcast, what you need to know is that the political events in 64 to 70 AD played a big part in this first Jewish-Roman war. The Jews were able to throw out Rome, but it didn't last. The Romans actually even renamed the city of Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolina. It's Hadrian that does this. And one of the reasons why they rename it is the idea is if we destroy the temple, if we give it a new name, if we kick out the Jews, we'll be done having these problems. And all of this is really spawned on by the zealot movement of the first century. Now, not to be outdone, there was another individual that came to power in the second century, and his name was Simon Bar Kokhba. And he was another individual that was a rebel, and he wanted to establish a state, a Jewish state. And he led a revolt, or what was called the Bar Kokhba revolt, against the Roman Empire, and for three years, he was able to rule as a prince of this semi-independent secessionist state of Israel. And there were even some great rabbinical scholars and teachers that proclaimed him as the Messiah. And he died in the rebel's last stand. And that, that's where we get into um, Masada. And that rebellion was put down. And so when Jesus says in Joseph Smith, Matthew, verse 9, that there will be many false prophets that shall arise and deceive many, he wasn't kidding. There was a string of messiahs that came out. There were many people. These are just a couple of the two famous ones. And so when he says in verse 6, many will come in my name, what he's saying is many will come in God's name. Uh, These individuals would use the name of God to claim their authority. And then they would use their texts. There, there are parts of the Hebrew Bible that talk about the king's ruling and having you know, everything fixed. And so they would come and say, hey, guys, that's me. And so that's kind of how I read that historically, but that's not the only way to read it. And it's not the only time it's going to come up, because
0: when we get to the prophecy of our day, that concept is going to come up. So let's jump to Jesus talking about the second coming. This is where the drum roll needs to come in, and you need to hear the loud music and the crescendo. Jesus, tell us about the dangers we're going to face. Tell us about the obstacles that concern thee. What do we need to know about the day in which we live? He's telling them about our day, and we need to perk up our ears and listen, because not only is he going to give us his concerns, but he's going to give us the antidote for those concerns. So let's get to our day. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here that his concerns of our day come in the order of his concerns. I don't think they're just randomly thrown out. Now, if we read Joseph Smith Matthew, the Savior is going to list four concerns, and I think he's giving them in his order of concern. So number one, the Savior's biggest concern about the days in which we live. From his own lips, ready? Verse 21, I'm starting at the semicolon. Joseph Smith, Matthew, verse 21. And again, after the tribulation of those days which shall come upon Jerusalem, if any man shall say unto you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, there, believe him not. For in those days... There shall also arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if possible, they shall deceive the very elect who are the elect according to the covenant. May I suggest that the Savior's greatest concern about living in our day is being fooled by an imitation. Now, think about how often that comes up in the scriptures. Think of Lehi's dream. Are you fooled by the building? Do you lose sight of the tree and the fruit thereof, and you gravitate to the building? Are you fooled by an imitation? In the book of Revelation, there's a beautiful woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon. She represents the church of God, the bride of Jesus. And there's also another woman clothed in purple and fine twine linen. There's an imitation. Are you fooled by the imitation? It's a common theme in the scriptures, and it seems to be the Savior's greatest concern. In Elder McConkie's Messiah series in chapter five, he talks about false worship abounds before his coming, and he gives us this definition. He says, the promise of false Christ who will deceive if it were possible, even the very elect who will lead astray those who have made eternal covenant with the Lord, is a far more subtle and insidious evil. A false Christ is not a person. It is a false system of worship, a false church, a false cult that says, "Lo, here is salvation, here is the doctrine of Christ. Come and believe thus, and so, and ye shall be saved. It is any concept or philosophy that says that redemption, salvation, sanctification, justification, and all of the promised rewards can be gained in any way except that set forth by the apostles and the prophets. So when Jesus says, Beware of false Christ, he's also saying, Beware of false prophets.
1: Or like false systems. Or he's
0: saying, Beware of false churches or beware of false plans of salvation. Now, as soon as we say it that way, that should just perk up all of our ears, because Nephi was allowed to see the end of the world. Do you remember how the angel says, you're going to see it, but you're not going to write it? Let's be very clear. Nephi saw exactly what John saw that prompted the book of Revelation. Nephi saw it. He didn't write it, but he saw it. Now, It seems clear to me that he wasn't allowed to write it, but he was allowed to comment on it. So turn with me to First Nephi chapter 22. This whole chapter seems to be a commentary on the latter days, on what he saw. First Nephi chapter 22 verse 13, he points out that the end of the world isn't the good conquering evil. It's that evil destroys evil. Evil turns on evil and destroys itself. Starting in verse 17 of 1 Nephi 22, he says, I can't tell you how it ends, but I can tell you over and over and over again, he says, the righteous need not fear. I can't tell you what happens. I've been told not to write it, but I can tell you that the righteous need not fear. Now go to verse 23. Nephi saw that the biggest threat in our day were false churches.
1: That word for church, we think like a building that has like a, maybe a cross on it, or maybe it's a mosque, and we kind of read church that way, but Ecclesia just means where people come and gather, or even the word for synagogue is this place where people come to gather. So think about this, there are virtual churches anywhere where people get together. So it could be a movement that is destructive to your spiritual progression. Yeah,
0: Nephi seems to be screaming at the top of his lungs to all of us that live in the latter days, beware of these false churches. So Nephi says in verse 23, for the time speedily shall come that all churches which are, here's the first one, ready? Built up to get gain. And think about how many of the elect are being deceived by the church of getting gain. How many people who made covenants in sacred places walk away from those covenants in their hearts because they worship in the church of getting gain? The second one is the church of power over the flesh. I think there's so many different churches that that describes. I think the warning of the Word of Wisdom in section 89 verse 4 about the conspiracies that men would use addiction to have power over our flesh and destroy us is clearly one of those churches. But any organization, any system that seeks to have power over the flesh is a false church. And then the third one he mentions is the church of those who become popular in the eyes of the world, the church of popularity. Maybe this is the church of caring about how I look on social media, the church of look at me. The fourth one, probably one of the most deadly in our day, is the church of the lusts of the flesh. This is a tragedy. How many of the very elect are being deceived by the church of the lusts of the flesh? And then Nephi mentions one more, the things of the world. Now, Jesus is raising his arms and yelling, and Nephi's raising his arms and yelling, and so allow me to raise my arms and yell. The biggest danger of living in the latter days Is being fooled by an imitation. Fooled by the building, the great and spacious building that pulls us away from the tree and its fruit. Pulled away from the church, the woman clothed in the sun, and pulled away to the harlot who rides the beast in great glory and worldly triumph. Don't be fooled by an imitation. Now, we're going to get to antidotes in just a minute, but let me just remind you while we're talking about it, what was the antidote in Lehi's dream to not being fooled by the building? Remember that. So there's concern number one. Jesus is concerned about those who live in the latter days being fooled by an imitation.
1: And just to add, Bryce, you said that even the very elect Maybe we're in one of those, and we don't even know it. And so sometimes it takes an outside voice to point that out. Let's get to
0: concern number two. Back in Joseph Smith Matthew, which is the JSD of Matthew 24, we're back at the Mount of Olives. It's Tuesday night of his final week. He's sharing concern number two about the latter days. Verse 23, he says, I speak these things unto you for the elect's sake. And you also shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all I have told you must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Jump to verse 28. They shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Verse 29, I speak for mine elect's sake, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, to fully understand this concern about war and rumors of wars, I believe we need to go to the Book of Mormon. President Ezra Taft Benson suggested that the pattern of Christ's first coming in the Book of Mormon is a pattern of his second coming to the world. Therefore, I would suggest that the days before his coming in the Book of Mormon are very much like the days before his coming at the second coming. If the great sign was given in 3 Nephi chapter 1, may I suggest that the book of Helaman is perhaps one of the greatest commentaries on life before the second coming that you'll ever find. In the book of Helaman, there's war. But if you look at the war, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 4, Something happens that never happened under Captain Moroni. The Lamanites make it all the way to Zarahemla. Now, I have learned to see that symbolically. I think it's symbolic that the Lamanites got to Zarahemla because symbolically they got to the heart. I believe what the Book of Mormon is suggesting, that the wars and the rumors of wars are not necessarily nation fighting militarily against nation. I would suggest to you that they are wars of the heart. We are fighting wars of ideologies, wars where oppressed people are fighting against those who oppress them. Don't we see nations rising against nations? Don't we see even within our nation, groups are rising up against other groups? Now, back in our Book of Mormon podcast, Mike and I talked a great deal about the antidote to wars of the heart. What Moraniah couldn't do with the sword, Nephi did with the Word of God, with the Scriptures, with truth, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The antidote to the wars and the rumors of wars is taught in the Book of Mormon. It's the gospel of Jesus Let's go back to Joseph Smith Matthew and find concern number three. Also in verse 29 of Joseph Smith Matthew, he talks about famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. Now this is where we probably ought to jump back to Mark and Luke's account because he just talks a lot about that. In Mark chapter 13, notice in verse 6, he says, many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And then in verse 7, he talks about wars and rumors of wars. And then in verse 8, after talking about nation rising up, up against nation, he says, there shall be earthquakes in diverse places. There shall be famines. And then I I think this next word is significant. There shall be troubles. You live in a day of natural disasters, a day of earthquakes and famines and troubles. In Luke's account, in Luke 21, after in verse 10, talking about nation rising up against nation, he says, great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and pestilences. And fearful sightings and great signs shall there be from heaven. In other words, you live in a day where earth itself seems to be in commotion and the earth seems to be testifying that the end is near. And these aren't necessarily signs that everything is out of control. They are part of his coming. This is the savior saying this is one of the challenges you're going to face is there's going to be famines and pestilence and earthquakes and the waves of the sea heaving themselves beyond their bounds. All of that, according to the Doctrine Covenants, is the voice of God warning the wicked to repent before he comes. Now let's do one more warning, the fourth one. Back in Joseph Smith Matthew again, verse 30, iniquity shall abound, the love of men shall wax cold. And all you have to do is watch the news to know that the love of man is waxing cold and that iniquity abounds. So, concern number one was many are going to be deceived by an imitation. Concern number two is so much fighting, so much anger, and so much bloodshed, and so many people turning against others. Wars of the heart will dominate the globe, and we're seeing that. Number three, famines and pestilence and earthquakes, and it sure seems like earth is in commotion. Concern number four, iniquity abounds.
1: Lehi talks about an opposition in all things. And as you're going through your list of four things, how many of these are actually because people are being stupid? I mean, the deception, that's that's on us as humans. The wars, that's on us the iniquity or the love of men waxing cold, I would say that's on us. How much of this is on us of our own doing? There's this quote by Joseph where he essentially says, the Lord of heaven's going to come to earth and say, how's it going guys? You're not really good at running things. Are you ready for the adults to take over? And where the Lord comes and says, let me show you how to do it. And I really do think like when you look at things like government spending, and how we're out of control with debt, and some of the problems socially we're having, and all these things as you're going through your list, and I'm thinking, the Lord in heaven is just so patient, and he's, and he's letting us try to figure things out, and uh, it's just not working out well. And I shouldn't laugh, because it is really sad. I mean, war is horrible, clearly, uh, but how much of this is just caused by our own greed or, or avarice, as it were? So
0: you know the Savior's not going to just do doom and gloom. He's not just going to say, oh, it's going to be really bad. It's actually going to be really good. Look at verse 31. As all those other negative things are happening, what's going to be happening simultaneously? This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come, or the destruction of the wicked. We're going to repeat the city of Enoch. We're going to build a safe place for the righteous to dwell while the earth turns against itself. And I remind you that President Nelson has said the greatest miracles the Savior will perform, he will perform in the latter days as part of the restoration. Do you remember that prophecy from Jeremiah that no longer would people brag about the God who brought them up out of Egypt and parted the water and did all those mighty miracles? They will brag about the God of the restoration, the God that's bringing forth the restoration in our day. We live in a wonderful day, but we do need to talk about the antidotes. Four major concerns And the Savior's now going to say, let me give you some antidotes. Now, I'm sure I'm missing a bunch, but I can only find two things He asks me to do to be fully prepared for the concerns that He has. Now, the second one is very elaborate and leads into Matthew chapter 25 and the three parables. I think the three parables are part of the second to do, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But just, and again, as a testimony to the simplicity of the gospel that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass, antidote number one, to do number one is verse 37. Whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. Now, I love that he used treasureth. He didn't use study or read. He said treasureth. I would invite you this week to have a discussion, either ponder this yourself or with your family or with your class. What does that mean, and how does that become a shield of protection against all the other dangers? How does treasuring up His Word lead us to preservation? He says, if you treasure up my Word, you will not be deceived. And it's a, just a simple to do. I think we could talk about prayer and scripture and temple and church and covenants and all those things are wrapped up into that simple request treasure up my word and you won't be deceived. Now, here's the second one. Jumping to verse 48 Be ready. Have you ever wondered why he doesn't reveal the day? Why does Jesus not tell us when he's coming? I think we would all know what we would do. What would humanity do if we knew it wasn't this year? And what he's saying is the greatest antidote, the greatest preparation for the challenges of our day is to always be ready for it to be today. The greatest protection for the dangers of our day is to live ready for him to come. So then he gives this wonderful parable about a man who puts someone in charge of his property who doesn't know when he's going to come. Now, what would you like if you were the person who owned this house? Suppose you own a house in Utah where we have beautiful mountains and we ski and it's just wonderful. Let's suppose someone buys a house here in Utah. And says look i want to come visit once in a while but i'm not going to tell you when i'm coming and he hires me to have the house always ready for him now what would please him to find when he came to the house i would imagine he would be thrilled if whenever he came to that house completely unannounced he found food in the refrigerator The house was clean, the yards and the grounds were immaculately taken care of, it was ready for him. What would he do to the servant he just hired? But contrast that, imagine he shows up unexpectedly one day and finds the servant has been slothful, hasn't taken care of anything, because he just planned on getting ready as soon as he knew the Lord was coming. The point is, the greatest protection against the problems of our day is to live as if he's coming today, doing the things that he would be pleased to find me doing. So notice in verse 50, blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Now watch what he's about to do. Notice we've come to the end of Joseph Smith Matthew. It ends in verse 55. But what would be the very next chapter? You've got to make the connection. Matthew 25 is given under the context of these are the things that he wants to find you doing. Therefore, the parable of the ten virgins, always have oil in your vessel. The parable of the talents, are you building his kingdom? Are you afraid to go out and try? And then the parable of the sheep and the goats, are you taking care of each other? Do you know what I hope he finds me doing when he comes? I hope he finds me taking care of my children or teaching an institute class or going on a mission. I hope he finds me in prison visiting someone who's there. I hope he finds me taking a meal to someone in need. And that's exactly what Matthew chapter 25 is going to teach. If you want to be prepared to live in the latter days, then these three parables, along with treasuring up his word, are the antidote. And so now let's turn to Matthew chapter 25, and let's go through these beautiful three parables with the eyes of, this is a protective cover for living in the latter days. And the first one
1: is the parable of the ten virgins. What a great segue into Matthew 25, Bryce. Thank you. I I love how you lay it out so simply, treasure up the word and just be ready. And it doesn't matter when you live. And so I love these parables, and these are just time-honored favorites of the Latter-day Saints. Uh, Matthew 25 reads in verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five were wise and five were foolish. And the foolish took their lamps and they had no oil with them. And the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us your oil for our lamps are gone out. And the wise answered and said, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Now I like the Joseph Smith translation that's right there in the footnotes where the Lord says, Verily I say unto you, ye know me not. And so there's this really interesting interplay between, okay, what does it mean to be wise and what does it mean to be foolish and what's the oil? The Doctrine and Covenants section 45 is going to say that the oil is the Holy Ghost. This is section 45, verse 57. For they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived. There it is. There's that back to what we've been talking about. They weren't deceived because they took the Holy
0: Ghost as their guide.
1: It's like right there breadcrumbs throughout the text. Verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. And the earth shall be given to them for an inheritance. And I like to tie that in with the meek shall inherit the earth. So this oil is the Holy Ghost, or it's the truth, or it's the treasuring of the word. And when I teach high school kids, I love to show a clip from Biggest Loser. And I love to show how Like, I can't lose weight for somebody else, or I can't get in shape or out of shape for someone else. Like, everyone has to kind of do this for themselves, treasuring up the Word, trimming their lamps, getting their oil. And so in the context of that idea, I love this quote by Elder McConkie where he says, salvation is a personal matter. It comes only to those who keep the commandments, whose souls are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. No person can keep the commandments for somebody else. No one can gain the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in their life and sell it to somebody else. Every person must light in his own lamp with the oil of righteousness, which he buys at the market of obedience. To Elder McConkie, he sees this idea connected to this reciprocal relationship with Jesus Christ, by my belief in him, by my trusting in him, that would then make it so I would follow him and try to keep his commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. As I try to do that, because it's this reciprocal relationship, the Lord gives me grace. He gives me glory so that I can continue on the path. And then as I continue, I then reciprocate. And then he reciprocates grace or power. And it's this ascending in this reciprocal relationship. And that to me is this oil. And and by the way, the oil is a beautiful symbol here because this oil is like a symbol for light. Like I light it and it creates light in my life. So whether it's treasuring the truth, receiving the spirit, what we have here is this light which is in us. And then we have President Kimball where he says, hey, you guys, the 10 virgins, it's not all of humanity. It's the church. He said, quote, I believe that the 10 virgins represent the people of the church of Jesus Christ and not the rank and file of the world. And so from his perspective, the 10 virgins, uh, these are individuals that are covenant keepers. These are individuals that are trying to follow Christ. And so it really is Jesus talking to the select group on the Mount of Olives. How can you prepare? Let me show you. It's a beautiful parable. And I would add, now
0: look at the three parables. The first parable is all about your connection with Christ himself. You gathering oil in your vessel from his marketplace. That's number one. You want to be prepared for his coming? Have a personal connection with Christ. Now watch how that's going to relate to the next two, because the next parable is about his kingdom, Are you wisely building his kingdom? And then the third one is, do you have a relationship with his children, the others around you? I don't think it's oversimplification to say preparation for the second coming. Being ready for Jesus is being connected to him personally, building his kingdom and taking care of other people. Look at those three and how simply and yet powerfully they protect us from all the harms of our day.
1: That's a great paradigm to see this. First, 10 virgins, my relationship with the Savior. Second, the parable of the kingdom or the parable of the talents. Am I building the kingdom of God? And then finally, others. And that literally means everyone. I like that as a paradigm because if I'm square with Jesus and if I have that relationship, what naturally follows? I want to build his kingdom. It just naturally
0: follows. I want to tell people about him. I want the message to go out. I want to do my calling well.
1: I want to pray in church and bring the Spirit into the meeting. I want to build His kingdom. I like that. When it comes to the parable of the talents, the story is essentially that there is three people. We have one who gets five talents, one who gets two, and one who gets one. And then the man who's traveling in verse 14, he leaves, and then he comes, quote, After a long time, it says that in verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And then the individual that had five talents creates five more. The individual that has two creates two more. But then the individual with one says, and this is a tough phrase, he says, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid the talent in the earth. Lo, there, thou that is thine. Or in other words, here's your talent back. And the Lord says to him, take the talent from him and give it to the person that has 10. That's Matthew 25, verse 28. This is a tough story. Now, I really like this commentary from David Seeley talking about this, where he says, "'The parable of the talent is a continuation "'of the simile with the kingdom of heaven.' "'While the phrase kingdom of heaven "'doesn't appear here in the Greek, "'the Greek particles that do appear "'suggest that this phrase has been ellipsed. "'And, as with the first parable, "'this one has to be compared with the kingdom of heaven.' "'The language of the parable is financial, perhaps because people have always been able to understand these terms. The meaning of the word talent as a quote-unquote, I'm using air quotes here, natural ability, like I have a talent for jump shots or I have a talent for eating a lot of food, especially cookies and cakes and those things. It's a natural talent I have. So the meaning of that word is a secondary definition of a word that originally meant a Greek monetary weight or coin. The meaning of ability did not occur until the Middle Ages, perhaps due largely to its usage in this parable. So this is really interesting that Dr. Seeley lays out where he says, listen, the fact that we even use talent as a word in the English language comes from this story. Now, we've talked about this before, but just to repeat, a talent was the government's Form the largest form of money, and it was a large amount of money. We're not really sure how much. A lot of people say it's about 3,000 shekels or about 75 pounds. It was a quite large weight of metal, either like gold or silver, typically silver a lot of times. Just imagine if you had a brick of gold or silver that weighed about 60, 75 pounds. If somebody gave you five of those, Yeah, you better go make some money. And so Jesus is using this story to teach them about what are you going to do with your time. And then it just naturally follows today where we say, okay, what are you doing with your time and your talents? And then in the temple context, the Lord says to you, all right, Mike, are you going to give me your time and your talents to build my kingdom? And if you do, blessed are you.
0: Now notice The person who got five talents, who went out and doubled that, that was a considerable amount of effort, to double the Lord's money. I built your kingdom, and I took the five, and I made you five, and now I have ten. His reward was, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come in. I've got a reward for you. And then the person who got two didn't come back with ten. And that's okay. Didn't even come close to coming back with ten, but doubled the two that he had came back with four, and what reward did he get? The exact same reward. And that's a message to all of us. Those who are five-talent saints need to build the kingdom at the ten-talent level. Those of us who are two-talent saints, you're going to build at the four-talent level, and the Lord's going to grant you the exact same reward. You don't need to be a prophet, seer, and revelator. You don't have to be the great Joseph Smith restorer of this dispensation. You don't have to be a stake president or a relief society. Blessed are those that are. Wonderful that we have them. But the two talent saints, I think this church is built on them. Just the high-yield, low-maintenance members of the church who just go out and build the kingdom. And they just double what they have. Bless everyone who builds the kingdom. Now, I want to talk about the guy who got one because I see this so prevalent, not just in the church, but in our society. I don't mean to oversimplify, but here's how I see it. He was so afraid to fail, he didn't try. And I think of so many people who are so afraid to fail, they don't try. Sometimes in marriage and dating, We're so afraid to fail. I can't tell you how many students I've told, ask her out. She'd be a wonderful date. Ask her out. Oh, I don't dare. Why? She might say no, and then you know she's not your eternal companion, and then you have some information that you could move forward with. They're so afraid to fail, they won't even try. Sometimes we do that with schooling, and we take, I I, want to take that class, but I'm so afraid of failing, I'm not even going to try and take the class. We do that with opportunities, and we do it with missionary work. We do it in so many different ways. I'm so afraid to fail, I'd rather not even try. At least I can take back the one talent I was given. Now, I remind you that the Lord said, thou fool. He didn't say that, but that's my paraphrase. (laughs) Thou wicked and slothful servant. In other words, I think the Lord is trying to say, I would rather have a people who fail but try
1: than a people
0: who are so afraid to fail that they don't try.
1: I think, Bryce, that's what we see a lot with the prophet Joseph. He was always moving forward and trying. So, for example, when he goes to Massachusetts to try to find money in section 111, in the very first verse, the Lord says, Joseph, notwithstanding your follies, bro, thumbs up. You were trying. Yep. That's the kind of people
0: the Lord wants us to be. I want a people that are always trying, even if they fail. I want a people that were willing to try and then get up when they fall. I love what the Lord said to Oliver Granger in section 117. When he falls, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred to me than
1: his increase. The Lord wants a people who is just trying to do their best. Think about the concept of even how we do our sacrament meeting. If perfection was the goal, we could have a paid professional clergy running everything but the lord says i'm gonna have sister so-and-so go and i want you to prepare this talk and poor sister so-and-so maybe hasn't even read that text in a while and she's probably panicking going ah i would never do as good as sister so-and-so and and sometimes and this is what's hard i think this is another reason why people don't try Because everyone else is watching and we're afraid of being judged. I think we can all try to give people grace because really everybody's trying their hardest. And I really think because of that judgment, sometimes we don't try. We need to hear
0: this parable. This parable is so pertinent in our lives today that the Lord is the one who says, I'd rather have you try and fail than the kind of person who's so afraid to fail you don't even try. So be that kind of person. And if people laugh and mock because you fell down, you know what? Guess who's not laughing and mocking? So there's number two on our list. This is what I want him to find me doing. Number one, I want him to find me with oil in my vessel, a personal relationship with Christ, light in my soul. Number two, building his kingdom, not afraid. To build his kingdom. I'm trying. And yeah, I fell down. I blew it, but I got back up because I'm not afraid. Now, number three. So we turn to the third parable. Verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them from one another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left, then shall the king say unto those on his right hand, "Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of this world, for I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison. And you came unto me. Then shall the righteous say, Lord, I lived in 2023. I never saw you sick. I never took care of you. I would have loved to gone back in time and seen you, but I've never once seen you. I never took care of you. I would have, but I never did. Then shall the king say, verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. That verse, verse 40 of Matthew 25, you want to be prepared for wars of the heart. You want to be prepared for natural disasters and calamities. You want to make sure you're not deceived by an imitation. You want to make sure the wickedness of men doesn't destroy you and your family. Then you take care of people. You go visit them when they're sick. I remember vividly one of the landmarks of my mission I served in Acapulco, Mexico for a considerable amount of time, and we met this sister who had been a lifelong member of the church but had been inactive for several years. She owned a radiator shop, and it was pretty clear after about a 30-minute conversation why she wasn't attending church. Her husband was in prison, and she was embarrassed, and so she didn't come to church anymore. So we said to her, could we visit him? Could we go meet him? Would you come with us? I'll never forget the look on her face when she looked at us like, you want to go visit my husband in prison? Yep, I do. So she arranged it, and we went out. Probably the most dangerous thing I did on my mission, probably the scariest thing I ever did, Americans were not necessarily well-loved by law enforcement. And I walked into a Mexican prison to visit a man. We had a wonderful visit. Sang, taught, laughed, joked. On the bus ride coming back from that Mexican prison back to Acapulco, I thought to myself, this is what I want Jesus to find me doing when he comes. I think that is the greatest antidote for everything that's concerning in our day. Have a relationship with Christ, build his kingdom. Don't be afraid to try and just take care of people, love them as if it
1: were him. I love that. And it really is that simple. Cultivate that relationship with the Lord, build his kingdom and love people with that. We will see you next week when we talk about Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 13. Thursday morning of the Savior's last week. Make it a great week.
0: Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.